you know, this whole food meets tech is that it's a dubious proposition. And so I'm hoping, and maybe it's wishful thinking, is that, you know, there'll be a little bit of a a relapse or, or coming back to things that are really more whole food or whole food based. Hey, podcast listener, welcome to the Eco D2C podcast, where we pick apart the strategies and growth journeys behind today's most successful mission-driven businesses. Even if you feel alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right here in your earbuds, you are joined by other entrepreneurs and leaders seeking to grow their businesses and impact on the world. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, check out ecod2c.com. Hey, everyone, and welcome back. I'm sitting here with Bob Burke. So Bob is as seasoned a veteran of the natural products industry as they come. He's the principal of Natural Products Consulting, which has been running for 24 years and counting, specializing in bringing natural, organic, and specialty products to market across all channels. He is also the co-author of the Natural Products Field Manual. Prior to consulting, Bob was with Stonyfield Farm for 11 years as vice president, sales and corporate development. He's held marketing positions with Colombo, Sperry Top Spider. He received an MBA from Babson College. He was named one of the top 25 business builders of the natural products industry for the last 25 years by Natural Foods Merchandise Magazine. And you may have seen him speak at Natural Products Expo, Fancy Food, BevNet, Nosh, et cetera. And he currently serves as an outside director and on advisory boards for many prominent natural brands that you and I know, too many for me to name here. Bob, how are you? I'm doing well. Great to see you, Luke. Great to see you too. So before diving in, can you tell us something interesting about yourself that most people don't know? Ah, let's see. Well, one thing that might be interesting is I'm a member of the Appalachian Mountain Club's 4,000 Foot Club of New Hampshire. So 48 peaks. So nothing like Colorado, but it's their equivalent of the 14ers, right? And so there's 48 peaks in New Hampshire that are over 4,000 feet, the tallest of which is Mount Washington, famously portrayed in a cover story of Yankee Magazine as Mountain of Death because of the treacherous weather conditions, even though in the grand scheme of U.S. mountains, it's not that tall. It's 6288 feet, but it's at this confluence of all these weather patterns. And so it's, you know, highest winds ever recorded in the world. We're on Mount Washington and they have some of the worst winters and climbers from around the world will train for Himalaya and Alpine conditions on Mount Washington. So quite a place. And it's been a great experience over the years to do a lot of stuff up there. So as a part of those peaks, are any of them in West Virginia? Well, this is New Hampshire. New Hampshire um, specifically. It's all in New yeah. Hampshire. Yeah. Appalachian Mountain Club, 4,000 foot club of New Hampshire. Got it. And they have other things. They have like tallest peaks in New England, tallest peaks in the Northeast, but New Hampshire is relatively mountainous compared to other states in the Northeast. Got it. Do you do a lot of hiking outside of New Hampshire as well? Like the Appalachian Mountains, it's a pretty long chain. Have you done like the AT or anything like that? No, that would be a commitment that I haven't really had the time to take off of work and everything else over the years. But that would be a wonderful thing to do. I mean, I have done hiking in, you know, Maine, for example, one of the most beautiful mountains in the Northeast is Mount Katahdin. It happens to be the northern terminus of the Appalachian Trail, and it's a spectacular mountain. And I've done some in Vermont and, you know, other areas, but it's a great place to get out to when you can. So you work with natural brands 
across a lot of different areas. And you've mentioned that when you begin with brands, one of the first things you do is you clarify some objectives. You know, what's their ambition with the business? Are they growing to sell? Lifestyle business, just to be in charge of the destiny, et cetera. How often do you come across brands that don't know their ultimate ambition yet or are pivoting? I'm curious. No, it's a great question. And I would say most companies have a sense and they're very clear, like they're looking to build and sell. And I would say without exaggerating too much, maybe upwards of 80% of the people at an Expo West or East or Fancy Food harbor that fantasy to grow and sell their business at an irrational price to a large CPG or somebody else. And almost always, if they've taken in outside capital from somebody else, they need to have some kind of liquidity event. And more often than not, that's through the sale of the company. Having said that, I try to get them to understand that that's not the only option. And there are plenty of great companies out there that are not large by CPG standards or even natural channel standards. They might be five, six, seven, eight million in sales where the owners are pulling out 500,000 a year or 800,000 a year. And that's not so bad either. And certainly it helps clarify whether they're running a business to maximize growth or profitability and you know whether they might be building for succession and others. And when I have this conversation, most people have a reasonably good idea of where they're leaning. And the ones that don't will say something to the effect of, you know, we're not running it to sell it, but if somebody gives us a great offer or if after a certain amount of time, I'm ready to move on, you know, any good sound business that's profitable will have a buyer. So that's usually where they come out on that. When it comes to outside capital coming in, do you find that a lot of investors are looking for stable businesses? I've heard, you know, I've certainly heard talk of multiples being really high in the space. And, you know, there's always the dream of unicorns. I think, especially as we're hopefully coming through COVID, a lot of that thinking has been a little bit discredited. And so for a long time, the mentality, both on the investor side and the entrepreneur side, was grow, grow, grow as fast as you can. Don't worry about losing money. It's all about top line. And there'll be somebody who will give you that crazy multiple where everything will fall into place at exit. And unfortunately, it's that small percentage of people who get to that finish line and who get those exits. And there's plenty of others who either run out of cash, they're not able to raise more money, their business has fundamental flaws, like they might be raising capital on an ongoing basis because they have a poor margin structure or they're, quote, buying distribution. You know, they're paying slotting fees, they're, you know, doing free fills, they're doing all these things to get that ACV, to get that distribution, but they're not seeing it in the sell-through, they're not seeing it in the velocity. And ultimately, there are certain things that investors, strategics, and others prize and not the least of which is, you know, a really strong velocity, a rate of sale off the shelf. And when it comes to e-com, you know, your month over month sales growth, ROAS, you know, all the normal metrics that you are far more expert in and things like gross margin, having a strong brand that resonates with consumers and can be a foundation to extend into other categories and usually some amount of traction in different classes of trade so that the buyer can extrapolate what this might be worth as they fill out distribution in these different channels. And so I would say the pendulum has swung back 
to investors and others wanting to see evidence of companies being capital efficient, being to really stretch their dollars, be good stewards of the money the investors have put into the company, where they're doing it in thoughtful ways that are strategically important. And ultimately, you know, getting to cash flow positive relatively quickly and, you know, having sustainable gross margins. Do you see many lifestyle entrepreneurs making it in food and beverage? It seems like a hell of an industry to, you know, try to set up a casual lifestyle. Yeah, Yeah, you can't really be casual about it. I think there's a difference having a lifestyle business, meaning you are on that spectrum of running to maximize growth. You know, there was a company I worked with some years ago. I mean, I worked with Theo Chocolate early on, right? So their Theo Chocolate is an amazing brand. The first organic and fair trade beans to bar chocolate in the States. They're based out in Seattle. I wrote their plan, worked with them through startup and launch. And they've been at it now for quite a long time. And, you know, they are growing and they have invested millions in CapEx and building out a team and marketing and all that. Meanwhile, there's a little company in Massachusetts I worked with some years ago that was four or five million in sales. And it was a very small team. And the founder was pulling out four or 500 grand a year and not working that hard once it was up and running. And so I mean this respectfully, but she had a couple of trusted people that could do the day to day. They'd work really hard in the beginning of the year you know, taking orders and stuff for the fourth quarter, which is a big peak season for chocolate. And then maybe her and her husband would go to New Zealand for a few months and then come back and work really hard the back half of the year. And it's something she did for years and then eventually sold it maybe for one-time sales or something like that. Not one of these huge, you know, mega blockbuster deals, but it all worked out well in terms of income over the years and then a nice little cushion for retirement. You've mentioned that launching and product validation strategy in this space is flipped. And please correct me if anything here is misquoted or going in the wrong direction. But our colleague said five years ago, the strategy was to get a beachhead, something like it in the Sprouts, expand from there to fill out the natural product sales channels, eventually go into mainstream like Walmart or Target. You said all this is flipped. Can you say more? Sure. You know, I think most people are familiar with omni-channel and whether you call it omni-channel or think of it holistically in terms of how brands intersect with consumers on different occasions, at the home, outside of the home, on and on and on. The combination of brands being able to reach consumers in so many new ways, whether that be Amazon, other e-com platforms, things like Fair, Mabel, GoPuff, your own DTC site, as well as channels that were probably inaccessible to early stage companies previously, such as Walmart, Target, and others reaching out to early stage companies and saying, we want to find a way to work with you. We want to get brands like yours in our stores. It's not all about price and almost counterintuitive that Walmart, which has that reputation for grinding people down on price, is actually a low cost of sales retailer, meaning trade spend and other things associated with them are much lower than other retailers and distributors. So for the brands who do do P&Ls by customer, Walmart is sometimes among their most profitable customer. And when you are going through that old playbook of going into Whole Foods, UNFI, natural independence, small premium gourmet supermarkets through distributors. For most brands, they were selling products at their lowest price, their distributor price with relatively high trade spend. 
And if you think about margins and you're able to think about a weighted average price where maybe 50, 60% of your business is through distributors at your lowest price, and then you're selling direct to retail at a higher price, and then some amount of your business, five or 10% might be direct to consumer at full retail, that weighted average, blended average, obviously brings up your average price, brings up your gross margin, and gives you more opportunities to do things like brand building, storytelling, and other things that are more durable ways of building uh, long-term value in your business. You mentioned omnichannel and all these different places brands can start now. The benefit of omnichannel also seems to be its curse for a lot of brands starting out. You can start in all these places, but thus, you know, begs the question, you know, where, like, what's your starting point? You know, what channels do you prioritize within it? Obviously, and this is something that we recommend to brands all the time as well. You want to be in as many places as you have bandwidth for. Where do you recommend that brands start? Like all else being equal, what is the best places to go to for these early tests? Yeah. So some of it depends on your category. Some of it depends on your temperature state, right? But I would say for the majority of shelf-stable products, we usually see them starting online. And that's going to be some combination of Amazon, maybe a Thrive. Most people have their own DTC site, Shopify, or otherwise powered. And so that's first. And you can get so much learning in terms of consumer acceptance. Is the product configured in the right way in terms of size, case pack, flavors, repeat purchasing? Is the price point dialed in correctly? All those kinds of things. And then once you have a little bit of learning there, almost always I'm recommending the people pilot in ideally their backyard, but you know, pilot in a region. And so not talking about this Procter & Gamble test market, But, you know, maybe it's 90 days or 120 days in 20, 30, 50 stores where you see evidence of the product selling off the shelf so that, you know, what's your optimal price point, how to merchandise it, how to tell your story to the trade and consumer, how to promote it. You've got all that right before you go out and expand distribution. So along those lines launching on online marketplaces like Amazon and having your own DTC, getting these learnings. It's very different than say the farmer's market. You can't ask as many contextual questions. You have a lot of data points that you have to know how to read. How would you go about, or how do you suggest the brands go about answering the question of, you know, reading the data that they get back? How can brands tell if they have something that's simply not working, needs iteration, or like is, you know, a base hit, so to speak, where the ceiling is going to cap out rather low? I'll start with some obvious things, right? So reviews drive everything online or most things. And so you're getting that feedback. People aren't generally holding back too much. If you are doing uh, email marketing to support your own direct-to-consumer activity, there's opportunities for interaction with consumers there in terms of uh, feedback on how the product's performing, how they respond to different promotions and offers, bundles, product you know configurations that sometimes you're putting in place to get people to that threshold where the whole shipping economics makes sense. So that's really important. But before I lose the thought, I want to go back. And I I thought you said something really valuable. And I I sort of skipped right over farmer's markets because it's almost like a, a prelude to going online or going into stores. But it is such a great thing for so many companies to do. And I just had a conversation this past week with a terrific early stage Colorado company who is doing fabulously well at farmer's markets where they were, like most entrepreneurs, started doing it themselves. 
Then they hired a couple people. And I think going into the summer, he's got like a dozen people lined up to do these farmers markets where, again, you're getting really high margin because you're selling it at full retail against cost of goods. And you're getting that amazing interaction with the consumer where you see them delighted by the products. If you're sampling, you might see them coming back week after week to buy more, ask about new flavors, or can you do this? Can you do that? So I didn't want to leave that out or skate over it because I do think there's a lot of valuable learning and experience that people can do if their products lend themselves to that. What are signs to you that point towards, let's say you're speaking with a brand that's struggling to increase its sales. It looks like they're coming up against you know, a roadblock. What's a sign to you that this product is kind of maxed out its capacity in the market versus like maybe there's just a couple things that need to be changed and then this product can scale much farther? Well, when you say maxed out its capacity, are you referring to the product itself? So when I start often, besides uh, asking people what their ambition is with the business, it's let's look at your product. And I always try to get people to think about, is this a remarkable product that deserves to win in the marketplace, i.e. meaningfully differentiated in compelling ways? And so that as they sit in front of a category manager a broker, a distributor, eventually an investor, is everyone concluding, wow, this is amazing. This is going to drive growth in the category, attract new users, offer something that isn't being offered, or has some strategic value for the retailer in terms of higher price point, higher ring, higher penny profit, more margin, again, different user, et cetera. So always start there. And then the part going back to having a pilot is it's all about selling off the shelf. Honestly, the easiest thing in this business is selling in, in terms of getting that distribution, but then selling off, you know, because once you're in, the clock is ticking until the next category review. All your greedy competitors are going to be gunning for you, maybe armed with data, whether it be spins data or IRI, Nielsen, et cetera, showing, you know, whether you're hitting category hurdles above, below, et cetera. And so you need to be on top of that as a brand owner. And, you know, the easiest thing is if you're in a Whole Foods, for example, anybody can get Whole Foods portal data and see units, dollars, average price by store, by region for any time period you want. And see how your product's not only performing, but how it's responding when you did a round of demos last week, or you were on promotion, or maybe you have an out-of-stock issue that you weren't aware of. So these are all things that you have to have your finger on the pulse and really be understanding. And so that evidence you're looking for, and that's also the flags that you might've been referring to of when it's flattening out, it's not growing. And certainly buyers can often tell you what those hurdles are in the category based on your positioning, your price point, what they expect from you and whether you're doing it or not. And some retailers have very explicit dollar thresholds. So famously, Costco might be $1,000 per SKU per club at retail per week. And so you pretty much have a good idea based on your shipments, whether you're hitting that or not. And the same thing with uh, Trader Joe's for people who do business with them. How do you see e-com and retail interacting? I think there's so much synergy there. I mean, again, going back to that holistic way of thinking of how brands intersect with consumers, 
you know how many consumers start their shopping experience by going on Amazon. Or if they hear about a brand, they might go to Amazon before they Google the brand. And so it's very important. And, you know, I think one of the things we talked about in a previous conversation was how for a long time, I saw brands very reluctant to talk to retailers about their success online, where, you know, they perceived it to be an intrinsic conflict. The retailer would be resenting the fact that they're also selling online and it's competing against them. And I've seen brands flip that script in terms of, you know, going to a retailer like a Wegmans, for example, and say, hey, we have 3000 consumers in your trading area buying our product every month and look at our five thousand four and a half star reviews against our competitors. You really need to stock us in your stores. And it works. What would you say is something that brands can emphasize when they're, because you're talking about something that, you know, we certainly emphasize too, your online presence can be complementary to your retail presence. It can literally help drive your sales. It'll, you know, increases your brand penetration. People can look you up, as you just mentioned, and see your reviews before they buy in-store, where it's probably a cheaper price point. Is there anything that you recommend that brands emphasize when using this digital data from their online sales channels to pitch to retailers to sort of to soothe those fears? Because it's no secret that retailers are really mad at, you know, the online marketplaces, especially Amazon. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of ways to think about it. One is you can certainly show things like consumer acceptance, you know, based on ratings, based on sales growth that the price point is right. Because a lot of times retailers are pushing back on price if they think it's too high for the category. And you can say, oh no, look here and look at how well we're doing. And so this price is perfectly acceptable. But also for anyone who's selling in multiple channels, you really have to think about a channel strategy. And many companies don't have the exact product that's on the shelf at a Whole Foods or a Wegmans as what they're selling online. And so they might have bundles, they might have variety packs, they might have different sizes, et cetera. And so that helps, you know, allay some of those concerns as well, that it's not exactly an apples to apple comparison where identical items are being sold more cheaply. Also, especially a lot of early stage companies are doing things like Seller Central on Amazon where they're controlling price point, inventory, things like that. So there can be less of that gap, especially if it's inadvertent or, you know, out of their control because there are other resellers on the marketplace. So I think that helps. And also online, they're able to more easily experiment and test new flavors and concepts and other things without the expense of, you know, putting them into retail distribution. And so that's another proof point they can show that, you know, we came out with this new flavor, this new configuration, and it's just killing it on Amazon. We now want to bring it out into your stores. What are some of the mistakes of navigating this intertwining of retail and e-com? What is doing it wrong look like? The opposite of everything I just said. (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) You know? No, I mean, let's face it. I'll give you an example. I was on the board of a uh, supplement company who, in addition to selling at retail, were also selling to practitioners, naturopaths, chiropractors, herbalists. Well, half of them were selling it out the back door on Amazon. And so their Amazon marketplace, if you will, was very messy because they were the brand selling. And then they had a couple of dozen of their customers also selling the same products, undercutting them. And it was this like, you know, ugly downward spiral in terms of pricing. 
that caused a lot of resentment by independent natural food stores and even some of the chains like Whole Foods and Sprouts. And so they made that difficult decision to essentially shut them all off. And they might have in the short term gave up a million or two million in sales, which was a bitter pill to swallow, but at the same time gave them a much more solid foundation going forward. And we're able to show that there was some teeth in their map policies and other things that they had. But that might be an illustration. So, you know, getting that pricing right. And also, I've seen people successfully sell online things like variety packs and multi packs, three packs, where it just changes the frame of reference from what consumers are looking at on the shelf. And so that's a good practice. And for those who don't do that, where they're just selling single units, either the economics don't work in terms of shipping and everything else, or there's too much of a gap with what's on the shelf in stores. How has retail expansion strategy changed over the last couple of years? Well, it's part of what I alluded to earlier, that I think you're seeing a lot of early stage brands going into conventional supermarkets in mass markets much earlier than they would have in prior years. And so you've got people like Kroger who are doing innovation summits. You've got Walmart and Target reaching out to these early stage companies. I mean, they are looking at Amazon as their longer term competitor. If you're Walmart, you don't want to just be selling legacy CPG products at low prices. You want to attract younger consumers. You want to attract more upmarket consumers. You want to have products that are on trend, you know, whether it's special diets like keto or plant-based or emerging things like products that have these medicinal mushrooms, low sugar products, and all these other things. And not just what, you know, Unilever, Kellogg's, General Mills, Kraft, Heinz, et cetera, are putting out. So how do you recommend brands navigate that though? Because one thing that I know you've spoken to is the dangers of scaling too far too fast. Yep. And, you know, there's all kinds of ad ages out there. Yeah. So there's two really basic things, right? One is first and foremost, you have to have gone through your operational shakedown. In other words, when you're selling into natural channel, specialty channel, you're going through UNFI, KHE, Whole Foods, Sprouts, Infra, NCG, they are a little more tolerant, not hugely tolerant, but more tolerant of all the hiccups because of decades of working with smaller, earlier stage companies, whether it's shortages, out of stocks, the odd quality issue, minor recalls, whatever. The bigger retailers, no tolerance for that at all, right? I mean, fines, penalties, discontinuations, et cetera, if you're having those kinds of issues. So, you know, before you go into a large conventional retailer, you really have to make sure, are we set up for this with co-packing capacity, warehousing, logistics, transportation, all those things so that we can execute when we get these big orders. So that's like a floor requirement. And then going back to what I was saying earlier, the importance of doing this pilot in seeing evidence of sell-through is that you don't find yourself in 3,000 stores collecting dust or languishing on the shelf. And then you're second guessing and you're a lot of hand-wringing over, is the price too high? Is the packaging not right? Too sweet, not sweet enough, and so on. And I've seen that way too many times. And undoing that will put a company out of business or be a severe body blow because it's just so expensive to unwind some of those things where I've seen beverages launch as 16 ounce and no, no, it needs to be 12 ounce or way too much sugar. They're going to bring down their sugar, bring down their calories. 
it can't be $399. It needs to be $299 and on and on and on. Get that dialed in right. And then you can step on your gas and broaden distribution if you're able to execute when those big orders come in. So you would still recommend essentially, if I understand you right, making sure that digital sustainable and making sure that your smaller natural grocers are sustainable before trying to touch big box, because otherwise you might end up burning a sales channel and not being able to open that back up because there was some hurdle that you had not, some stress test you had not passed yet. Yeah. I would say generally, yes. In other words, I think natural and specialty retailers have a tremendous place in the market. It's where a lot of well-educated, maybe more affluent health-conscious consumers go to discover new products. And at the same time, as I said, conventional supermarkets, what we viewed as niche 10 years ago is become mainstream. So better for you products, healthier products, cleaner ingredients, organic, non-GMO, regenerative organic are all becoming mainstream. And therefore, you know, one of the ways so many of the companies I know think about it is, look, this is why we get into this to begin with, to make these accessible to as broad an audience as possible. You know, this isn't elite products for elite consumers. It's like we really want to democratize this, you know, small d uh, democratize to make these available and accessible. And if, you know, that means going into Walmart and Target and Costco and Sam's while you're in, you know, natural retailers and specialty retailers and premium retailers, then ultimately that's what we've all been working on for so many years is to really, you know, move the thinking about food and health to an area that's become truly mainstream. Are there any sales channels or marketing opportunities that you think are lesser known or that are underutilized by brands that you wish more would jump on? That's a great question. So in terms of channels, there are so many channels out there and it's not exactly a channel, but I've seen more and more early stage brands get a nice little sales hit, margin hit doing business with TJX, which is the umbrella for TJ Maxx, Marshalls, Home Goods, and Sierra Trading. And again, years ago, there was a little bit of a stigma to that. It was a you know liquidation channel for a lot of businesses. And now you walk into one of those stores and you'll see a lot of familiar brands that you'd also see at Whole Foods and Sprouts and other premium retailers. And the nice thing for the brand is it might be an in and out where they sell them a lot of product, they get paid promptly. And while they might be selling it at a lower price, there's no distributor, there's no broker, there's no trade spend. So their contribution on that business is probably higher than their branded business into a distributor. And they're getting paid promptly. So it's almost like another source of funding for a smaller, earlier stage company, especially things like snacks, confection, specialty gourmet type foods that you'll see in there. I mean, it looks like the Moroccan Bazaar, right? It's not a planogram. There's no category reviews, but you're seeing a lot of buyers from those retailers walking expo, fancy food, sweets and snacks and elsewhere. So that's intriguing. And then there are some of these, you know, half a degree away from conventional. So it might be college bookstores, college convenience stores or a nice channel. You know, UNFI does a lot of that. Airport newsstands, you know, Hudson News and places like that, you're seeing healthier products. 
on the go, which is in Newark Airport and a, you know, a bunch of other airports where almost everything they're selling in convection and snacks are natural, organic, better for you. They don't have Frito-Lay. They don't have Mars. They don't have Hershey. They'll have these natural brands. So that's kind of intriguing. The one caution is selling airlines until you really do your homework. In other words, there are, my friend Julia Stamberger has something called Airline Emporium. They're an airline broker and they would provide good advice. But a lot of brands are approached by airlines essentially saying it's a marketing opportunity. You know, sell it to us at cost, sell it to us for a loss. And you're going to be, you know, sampling these tens of thousands of people. And I think that's a dubious proposition. I think if you can make even 10 or 15% and get that marketing benefit, then that's worthwhile. But otherwise, I'm not a big fan of just churning dollars. You mentioned something interesting. When do you think a given sales or marketing channel is justified as break even? When do I think it? Mm-hmm. Like, are there other particular channels that you think of in that way? Or I know that's this a complex question with a lot of uh, moving parts. Yeah, well, no, no. The, the pat answer would have been if you're intentionally looking to sample products by making it available for air, to airlines at cost, you might rationalize that, hey, we're breaking even. It's more volume through the plant which might bring down some of our cost of goods. So there's some marginal benefit to that, but we're doing it strictly for marketing purposes. That's an example where you might intentionally do it at break even. Another is if you're breaking into a new channel and it's at break even for an acceptable amount of time. You know, I mean, you've heard of slotting fees, listing fees. Certainly some retailers are quite expensive and you might say, look, it's strategically important I'm making this up, right? It's strategically important for us to get into stop and shop in the Northeast because once we're in stop and shop, that'll open us up to all these other retailers and they might have high slotting fees. And so we may break even for the first year or it may take us six months, nine months to break even on that slotting investment, but we're doing it intentionally and strategically. We're not just floundering around, you know, going here and there and just recklessly spending money. And the other one too, that a lot of companies struggle with is food service, right? It's this very disparate channel where you have institutional, i.e. universities, corporate hospitals, you've got commercial restaurants, coffee shops, cafes, et cetera. And sometimes it's a little hard to navigate. And so getting all that right in terms of where you're getting into the right operators through the right distributors with the right pricing and participating in the right programs so that you have a pathway for this to be a profitable part of your business. That's important. Years ago, I consulted with Oregon Chai, the uh, chai tea concentrate, and they launched into food service in part to introduce consumers to what chai was. And consumers got to experience it under the best circumstances possible with this, you know, charming barista with the steamed milk and the froth and the whole theater of preparing it. And then they could go buy the concentrate in their supermarket. And so that's another example where it might serve as a a big marketing benefit, more so than just making money out the gate. What is a $100,000 problem that you would like to see solved in this space? Wow, that's a good question. A $100,000 problem is not a big problem in the grand scheme of things. You know, one of the things that is interesting that we're all living through, so this is 
one of those patently obvious things that I pronounce is, you know, business travel is changed for good, right? And so before COVID, I would have clients and colleagues getting on a plane from Boston to Phoenix to have a 20-minute meeting with Sprouts. That won't be happening anymore, I don't think. I think those kinds of meetings are going to be done over Zoom. And so it might be interesting to see something evolve where maybe suppliers who might typically be visiting customers on a quarterly basis or three times a year, where maybe one of them is in person and it's a longer meeting, it's a fuller discussion of what's going on in the category, maybe discuss innovation, maybe go out afterwards to dinner or to a ball game or what have you. And the other meetings are done over Zoom. And I'm just thinking like if that evolved into some kind of a convention where Kroger announces this is how they're interacting with suppliers going forward for the sake of everyone's efficiency and, you know, taking needless cost out of the system. That'd be interesting. You know, I'm not sure if that's what you meant or had in mind, but just off the top of my head, that's something I thought might be an interesting thing to think about going forward. And a bigger issue let's call it a million dollar problem. You, you right? took my next question right out of my mouth. I think there's an amazing opportunity and a need to get the whole industry to move towards more sustainable packaging, right? That's another obviousity, right? And so everybody is already mindful and even up in arms over the impact of too much plastic, whether it be single serve containers, plastic bags, you know, on and on and on. And part of the challenge is there is compostable plastic, you know, made of cornstarch or other byproducts of agriculture and things like that. It exists. It's just not economically feasible for most people. I mean, there might be, depending on the application, some operational challenges in terms of how it performs and looks and all those kinds of things. But right now, it's just not economically feasible because of scale. And so I think if either manufacturers came together, collaborated, frenemies, whatever you want to call it, for the greater good and said, look, we're going to insist on this kind of packaging and we want the market to respond with something affordable within a, a lower cost than what we're currently using now, plastic from petroleum, et cetera. That would be a big idea. And I think that would be much more than a million dollar problem being solved just because of its impact on the planet and everything else beyond, you know, just what's good for everybody. Crystal ball. What do you think is around the corner? Are there any seismic shifts you think might come in the next three to five years or even subtle ones? I was thinking of a flippant answer, but I'll bite my tongue. As far as what's coming around the corner, I do think there'll be this sort of shakeout in plant-based. You know, I was joking with someone, you know, you and I were both at Expo West and I was saying we've reached peak chicken nugget, you know, after, I don't know, 14 companies exhibiting with chicken nuggets that are highly processed and beyond being breaded and fried and seasoned and whatever kind of look the same and many of them sort of taste in the same ballpark. I think, you know, what we're already seeing in this backlash against impossible and beyond meat and, you know, this whole food meets tech is that it's a dubious proposition. And so I'm hoping, and maybe it's wishful thinking, is that, you know, there'll be a little bit of a, a relapse or, or coming back to things that are really more whole food or whole food based. So they look like food, they are food, they're healthier, less processed, things like that. 
and this whole idea of going through hoops with science and long, long, unpronounceable ingredient lists to do meat analogs and seafood analogs and poultry analogs and on and on in the name of, quote, being plant-based, I know there's like a marginal, you know, environmental benefit perhaps in terms of, you know, the impact of animal protein and, and raising that, especially the big, you know, concentrated uh, agricultural operations, et cetera. But I think that'll be something we'll see. And some of the other trends that are already in place, I think will continue, like lower sugar products and taking that out really thinking about gut health and the impact of a healthy biome on overall health and cognitive health and things like that. Seeing a lot of work in sleep. You know, evidently there's a global epidemic in sleep deprivation. And so whether it's products that are so-called soporifics, things that make you sleepy, you know, valerian and chamomile and other things like that, or things that reduce anxiety that help you fall asleep. I think we'll see a lot more of, of those kinds of things. But I like the continued way of reaching more consumers with less friction. I like some of the new funding things that have come out like WeFunder and Republic and others that are helping companies raise money that aren't necessarily Kickstarter, where that might skew a little more towards promotional than actual raising capital. So I think those are good because there is that hard to fill gap between friends and family and say, small funds and large family offices that we funder and others address. So I think that's a good trend in the right direction that helps everybody, especially emerging brands. What is a challenge that you face in your own business? That I will give a flippant answer to, which is, you know, I'm in a good place. I've been consulting now, as you mentioned, for 24, 25 years on top of having a great run with a, a terrific company like Stonyfield. I've got this nice little virtuous circle of books, seminars, consulting boards, advisory boards, things like that. And so I've been telling my wife now for three years, I'm scaling back. I'm uh, trying to cut back a little bit because you know, we're your prototypical empty nester baby boomers who want to do more travel and do more different kinds of experiences. And so it's balancing that with things that I really love and things that keep me challenged and stimulated and continuing to learn new things. So it's just getting that right balance and without a pat answer around work family balance. It's more, you know, balancing a little bit of time off and learning new things with continuing to do a lot of what I'm doing. I also enjoy spending time on boards and advisory boards. I find it's a tremendous personal growth experience as well as hopefully contributing uh, to the companies I'm working with. And so I recently joined the board of a soon to be formed bank, a mutual bank in New Hampshire called Walden Mutual. And it's gonna be entirely focused on the food ecosystem of New England and New York State. And so that's moving me into a, an exciting new area that is a challenge in terms of learning about the banking business. It's highly regulated. There's a lot of moving parts, but fascinating and, and certainly a strong need that helps support the overall sort of ecosystem in the industry. And then overall, for someone like myself, who's been in this business for a long time, the world is changing by the week. Probably one of my greatest fears, you know, either being uh, out of touch, irrelevant, or you know, still talking about how things were done five years ago. And so it's a more than a challenge, I think, for everyone to stay current 
in terms of the state of the state with all the things we've talked about in this discussion. And so I think it's a healthy challenge concern that everyone should be thinking about. And I will lapse into a cliche, invoke uh, poor Charles Darwin, who always gets misquoted. It's not the survival of the fittest, it's the most adaptable. And everybody who's listening to this needs to think about how are they adapting every week, every month, as things continually change, especially there's so much uncertainty as we sort of come out of COVID, work from home, hybrid workplace, global supply chain challenges, inflation, volatile political climate, all those things. We all have to be adaptable and try to see where things are turning and we anticipate that and try to meet it. What is something that I haven't asked you that I probably should? Did you ask me about how people can learn and and buy my Natural Products Field Manual 9th edition? I have not. (laughs) How can people buy the the field manual? Yeah. So one of the things I did with my friend Rick McKelvey 20 years ago is when I started out, this was a couple of years after I started consulting, three or four years afterwards, I found myself in conversations with brands where for the 15th time I was explaining how one calculates gross margin or the 20th time I explained the difference between a broker and a distributor and how would one find a good broker and manage them and work with them effectively. And so that led me to think about, hey, I can do this in front of 50 people at the same time, which helped you know, stimulate this idea of putting on seminars. And closely behind that was maybe this could make its way into a book of sorts or a manual or even a leave behind for someone who came to the seminars. And one thing sort of led to another and it morphed and changed and became the field manual that ate Chicago. And so the whole field manual package today is content. It's like a how-to guide reference book with 44 chapters, four volumes, 50, 60 outside experts who wrote either entire sections, essays, commentary, etc. It also comes with databases of stores, distributors, brokers, contract sales, budget models, as well as, you know, public information there for your convenience. It might have Whole Foods' 2022 category review calendar or other retailer and distributor programs. It also comes with over a hundred grand in coupons for services. So these are either people who wrote pieces in the book or people who I know, like, and trust for example, contract sales organizations, e-com experts, people who source co-manufacturers, recruiters, PR firms, on and on and on. And then I bundle a half-day consulting with it. And so I sell the whole package for four grand, $39.99. It's on my website, uh, naturalconsulting.com. And it's often a way I get started with people. So people will say, how do you work? And I'll explain. I do one-off consulting days, retainers. When I do projects, it's often writing plans, or it might make sense to get the field manual and then use the half-day consulting from me. And that's how a lot of people do it. And the one misconception that I sometimes have to overcome is that these are only for startups. If you go to naturalconsulting.com and you can look at the table of contents and the list of coupons and all those things, you'll see a really long list of companies that have purchased it over the years, ranging from you know, small to medium to very large companies, along with other consultants, investors, recruiters, and a lot of people in the ecosystem. And so it's been a great thing to have. It's something that keeps me current in terms of as we've updated, we're on the ninth edition now, 
And sometime later this year, we'll be starting work on the 10th edition. But it's been a great resource and happy to bring it to the uh, market. That leads right into my final question. Where can our listeners find you? Naturalconsulting.com. So that's my website. It has my profile services, background, as well as information on the field manual. And we hope later this year in December to bring back the two-day sales seminar and one day on raising capital. Been running for 18 years now, twice a year. So that'll be there. And I'm also on LinkedIn, of course. So you can find me there under uh, Bob Burke. All right. Well, Bob, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure. Same here. Thanks, Luke. All right. Take care. Hey, podcast listener. That's it for us this week. As always, it's a pleasure having you here. If you want to check out more episodes and learn more about us, visit ecodc.com. See you next time.